Hi folks, Peter here. We've got something different for you this time. This is the audio from our virtual panel that we did for Save Against Fear online this year, tying together some of the more specific spooky elements from earlier this fall and providing some general advice as well as a few viewer questions. It's not our usual format, but we were really happy with the content and wanted to share it with all of our listeners, not just the ones who tuned in that Sunday. And if you'd rather see the original video, you can find a link in the show notes at stgcast.org. Enjoy. Welcome to Save Against Fear. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm Jenny. Yep. And that'll be Jenny as soon as I get her on screen. Give me a minute. Okay. I'll work it on. <laughs> uh, okay, wait, wait. So, ah, so they there's multiples of me. <laughs> they can't actually see me yet. Not yet. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm going to get something right quick. All right. Hang on. All right. It's fine. That's that's most of a Jenny. I think we're good. <laughs> All right, Jenny will be back in just a second. But yeah, we're we are Grant and Peter and Jenny from Saving the Game, a personal podcast about tabletop role playing and games and collaborative storytelling. And we're here to talk about spooky elements in your games and i am excited because this is something we have been talking about for like two months on our show and it's gonna be great yeah this if you've heard all of our episodes this might be a little bit of a highlight reel but there's probably going to be some new stuff in here too so and if you haven't oh you're in for a treat but we are (laughs) one of the things we're going to be talking about a little bit is how to uh, incorporate spooky elements carefully, uh, respectfully of other people who may have issues with certain things, how to be very safe about these sorts of things. You know, obviously very important for everybody attending Save Against Fear. Uh, And while we are none of us therapists or really involved in mental health in any way, we want to at least be aware of some of the mild uses of like, hey, you know, there therapy is sometimes about dealing with uncomfortable things and so that's something that we are aware of and we're going to touch on though please don't take anything we say as therapeutic advice we're not professionals um right you should have attended the other panels for that all right um i hope everybody's had a good save against fear uh i have not been able to attend any of it for which i am deeply deeply sorry because everything i have seen going past in the saving and sphere discord has looked amazing yeah i've had kind of a similar experience and other stuff that i needed to do this weekend but at least we're here for this grant we have participated exactly (laughs) made it in person once but you and i have not made it to anything involved with saving and sphere yet so yeah Yeah, i'm seeing some fun weekends in chat so that's promising yeah it's been canadian thanksgiving up here so Mm. I've been busy with oh, that. Nice. Um, Entirely yeah. fair. Yeah. All right. A um, couple of notes before we really get into our topic. First of all, we're going to talk for about an hour just as a panel, and then we are going to open things up for questions and answers. If you have any questions, save them until that point. You know, Just jot them down or something. I'm going to do my best to keep track of them, uh, especially during the Q&A. If I miss them, you know, don't spam, but don't be afraid to repeat yourself if we're not, if we haven't answered it in like five minutes or it's fine. Right. Don't worry about it. Um, and second, I didn't have a second thing, so we should go. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, spooky elements. What do we mean when we say spooky elements or spoopy? Uh, pretty much anything that kind of creates that general feel of, 
I guess, unnaturalness and unease that you're kind of looking for in horror gaming. Right. Are we just talking about horror gaming here, or are we talking about bringing in something to it, any sort of game? I think we can bring something into any sort of game. I don't think it necessarily has to be horror. Um, I think you can definitely bring spooky elements into a comedy game. It's tricky, but but it can definitely be done. Um, yeah, and I think, I think more to that point, a lot of the time you, you'll get a certain amount of mileage out of bringing some spooky elements into um, certain other genres, sci-fi in particular, like space is a little eerie. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you can, you know, bring some of that into, you know, kind of the feeling of this unfamiliar planet is, you know, you're not expecting to encounter anything. Otherworldliness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're not expecting to encounter anything supernatural per se, but nothing here is known to you. So yeah, definitely something outside of your experience, any sort of exploration game. It doesn't even necessarily have to be space travel. Um, can have these sort of, spoopy element um i i remember one game in particular that i that i was in where um our job was to get a spell jammer going again and that involved a fair amount of travel to find components for it and it was not a horror game by any means but there was one particular uh place we went into it was like this big water temple it was unsettling It, it was a little spoopy and it was just enough spookiness to to be fun but it was not enough to like turn it all the way into like a horror game or anything like that yeah hmm. no i i love that also as soon as you said trying to get a spell jammer going again my thought was oh my goodness are we doing a haunted spell jammer ship so you know uh that <laughs> yes uh it wasn't so much haunted it was uh uh fungus infested okay that's worse oh boy yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> oh great we were talking about you know that sort of alien sort of of spookiness when I yeah. think spooky, everything I think of is a familiar element, just uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Alien is is very spooky. Don't get me wrong, but I, you know, I think rats and fungus and spiders and snakes. We just our last episode that we recorded was all about pests and creepy crawlies, right? All of that sort of thing. But there's so much atmosphere you can put into a spooky scene that comes even just from darkness and sound descriptions and all that sort of stuff that's all very familiar but is either out of place or is triggering something that says this is bad yeah like like a piano um recorded backwards that it because instead of the standard like sudden sound with with a drop off it's crescendo into a sudden drop off yeah yeah, Um, that's real weird stuff like that it's basically uncanny valley stuff yeah uh with with uh yeah i think the the way that i personally differentiate between spookiness and like outright terror and scariness is um level of uncanny valley and w- would i put it in a haunted house for kids <laughs> okay yeah <laughs> like in any capacity at all cuz like um i would not you know have somebody running around with a chainsaw in a, a kid's haunted house. That's not a thing I would do. Sure. Would I put, like, would I put a spooky, weird fungus person in a kid's haunted house? Yes! I would. I would do that. Because it's something that is familiar that has been made slightly unfamiliar. Yeah. Okay. It is, just just to, yeah. just to quick clarify, are we talking a myconid? 
or are we talking a clicker from the last of us? Cause that's a, you can, you've got a spectrum of fungus people to work with there. I think we can get into the, into the minutia of fungus people. Uh, well, later. Adding a it's just in of general people to our shirt list. So, you know, <laughs> I, I think um, before we move on though, I think one of the things that really gives you kind of that spooky sense is any kind of uncertainty. Um, so like anything that obscures things, anything that um, just makes things kind of unknown. We mentioned in the uh, episode that we just, um, that Grant just referenced about the creepy Carly's that a spider that you've lost track of is much worse than a spider that's still right in front of your face, right? Um, so things like darkness, fog, uh, stuff that muffles or distorts noises, you know, coming from around you. Uh, we so, talked about this a little bit in, when we were creating a haunted house too. Uh, you can you can get kind of this feeling of you know what was that you know and it's um, it's it's good to have that kind of uncertainty in there without necessarily the certainty that it is something horrific because the yeah. spookiness I think comes from is that just rats or is that something much much worse you know sure. and so much of it is. Little, little red herrings as well. You turn the lights on and, oh, it's just a pan at a funny angle, right? You get, a, you get a couple of red herrings, a couple of false starts, and then they're like, okay, this is weird, but how weird is it actually? And then, oh, no, that's actually weird. Yeah. You know, I've got a four-year-old. I can't tell you how much I have to explain to him because he's exactly that age. Everything in your room is exactly the same when the lights are off as when the lights are on. It's the same stuff. The darkness didn't change anything. But of course, he is at that age where he's like, but I'm afraid of the dark. Mostly because I think he thinks he wants to be afraid of the dark. Um, like okay. Most of the time, he's happily singing to himself until he falls asleep in bed. It's fine. But at bedtime, when it's time to actually go to sleep, he's like, I'm afraid of the dark. Can you stay in here? It's like, I don't think you are really. But that that's the idea that I have to keep explaining him. This is all the same. And I had to do the same thing with my older child when she was that age. It's like, this room is exactly the same. And giving, changing the atmosphere of a thing works really well just to have spookiness. Because you can turn it, you can, like a yeah, light, turn I, it on and off and make a spectrum of just how spooky is this thing. And that's something that you can slowly ramp up. Yeah, I think it's also something, it's a useful thing to take away like, like you give a red herring the characters know it's a red herring give another one as soon as the players start saying and predicting oh now we're gonna do this and it's gonna be whatever that's when you have to stop and that's when you have to completely change tactics and come up with something else yes because as soon as they predict you must then they have become comfortable and then you must uncomfort them mm -hmm. a little bit not not to the point of like, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, Jason with a chainsaw comes out and and, and yeah, that's terror rather than spooky. You so. may not have to throw yeah. that change in immediately. Reward them for figuring things out and then yeah. find a way to change the rules that don't actually violate the rules mm -hmm. that you're trying to establish for whatever scenario this is. Mm -hmm. If it's always the GM is just changing the rules constantly and this is theater of cruelty run by a GM, I mean, that's just not fun. I mean, no. that's why they call it theater, yeah. theater of cruelty and why Pinter should be fired out, out of 
the earth into the sun. But that's, you know, that's just mean. So right. if we mm-hmm. can set them up and say, yeah, you've got this figured out. You think you know what's going on, but you didn't have the whole picture. I think that's very rewarding because it gives the players a success and gives one of the most valuable things in storytelling, which is a dramatic rise and fall. Sure. And that's actually what I love using spooky stuff for. I I love horror games. I really do. Some of the best gaming I have ever uh, played in at conventions has been horror games or horror-adjacent games. But when I run games, I don't really have the opportunity to run horror games very much. But, you know, Peter and Jenny both have been in my games. You know I like to run games that have that that rise and fall, that like to build up tension and then release that tension and reward that. And one of the ways sure. you do that is you bring in those spooky elements and you be like, this is not a comfortable scenario. This is something that needs to be fixed or resolved. I think one of the best examples was probably that pocket dimension in the colony game with the beholder and the Nothic in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just to give kind of an idea of how this worked. This was, this was the setup. Um, we wandered into this cave under, we were looking for something and there's like this weird exploring. Yeah. This just this big, like plate on the floor uh, and a bunch of skeletons around it. And at some point, like the skeletons like animated and shoved us all into this plate, which sent us to a pocket dimension. Okay. So first of all, you know, you've got like, you've got the, the creepiness of skeletons, but they're not trying to kill you. They're just trying to do something that sends you to some other unknown place. Now you're in a location that we didn't figure out it was a pocket dimension right away either. We just knew we were somewhere else. So there's another element of uncertainty. Um, we found out pretty quickly that we were in jail cells. We were able to free ourselves from that. Uh, bumped into a small, like uh, a spectator or something like yeah, that, whatever Sal like was. Creature. Yeah, little, little mini beholder. Um, interacting with him brought in some other uh, levels of uncertainty, including like the bizarre way that you described him telepathically telling us what his name was. That was this whole like weird collection of sensations. Uh, then found out that like he's trying to keep everybody prisoner until his master. Um, gets things figured out, but his master has turned into a Nothic, which is another kind of weird creature. And yeah, it just kind of, it kept like building and building from there. We eventually just, you know, kind of rescued the people we were uh, looking for. They turned out to be in this pocket dimension and yeah, there was, there was a bit of a fight and stuff. I mean, it was D and D, but all of that kind of uncertainty, weirdness, Hey, there's this other element that we weren't anticipating hey, there's this other thing that we're not quite sure of the nature of. You can build all of that together, and it's it's not terrifying. It's not going to make somebody, you know, like grab for a bucket to, to hurl into or anything, mm-hmm. but it will definitely unsettle you and put you on the back foot a little bit. And that's That can be interesting. Yeah. So let me ask this. Just we've mentioned one game there. Jenny, what's the, the best spooky scene in a non-horror game that you've gone through? Okay. So, that I, I have personally gone through myself. As a player, um, it had to have been a Delta Green game that I was in, where I was playing um, a medic. Uh, I believe I had 
like none of us had like you know terrible sanity scores or anything like that uh, for those who don't know delta green is a uh variation on call of cthulhu so it's it's made to it's it's not exactly made to be a horror game it is more along it's almost closer to monster of the week um yeah, it is. it's 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 an investigation game more than anything yeah, so the player it's, characters, it's not, as opposed to being like academics and stuff, are soldiers, intelligence agents, that yeah. sort of thing. They're a little more yeah. formidable. So, it's it's closer to uh, it's, it's closer to X Files. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I was playing a medic. We were we had been investigating this town. There, I don't even remember the actual mystery. The scary scene that I remember. And the most fun I had with it, because I was able to, I, I wasn't actually scared myself. There was very little bleed there. I was perfectly content. But we had tracked, I think it was a drug dealer or something, because we thought that there were like weird drugs going on in town. We tracked this drug dealer to a cave um, just outside of town. And uh, <laughs> we split the party, because of course we did, because it was a con game and we knew it was coming to an end. Uh, so I went down one pathway. The other group went down another, and I came face to face with um, this monster that looked like a blown glass sculpture. And I rolled very poorly on my sanity check, and the GM looked at me and said, Okay, you've gone insane. Congrats. You've gone insane. How do you do that? And so I got to choose how to ruin the day of everybody else there <laughs> by basically bringing complete and total attention to the fact that yes, there are um, people in this cave that's supposed to be full of blown glass monsters. Right. Um, and I chose to be thoroughly inconvenient and scream and run and scream and run. I think that's probably one of the best ways that, that it's gone. And I think a big part of that was um the way the GM built up the tension over the course of the game. As you slowly find out more things about what's really going on, you slowly realize how little you actually know about the setting that you're in. Right. Um, and so it's it's one of those things about knowing... What, what's the name of that bell curve? Where it's like the... the cur I call it the curve of knowing, where it's like... You know something. You think you know a lot about something. You realize you know you have enough knowledge to know that you don't know anything about something. Right. There, there, I know that the Dunning-Kruger effect is when you know just enough yeah. to think you know a lot. I don't know what the mm -hmm. actual curve is called. So. Yeah. yeah. Um. But going through that that curve is probably one of my favorite ways to experience horror myself. Uh, my favorite uh, horror thing I've ever done to players was when I was gaming with kids and uh. They came across a giant spider that talked to them in a robot voice and then bent, bent itself in half so it could see all of them with its many, many eyes. <laughs> nice. Um, and it's... I, I had already checked with the kids beforehand. We did a little bit of a um, lines and veils questionnaire um, about like what, what their uh, yeses and noes were. Spiders never came up on there. Uh, so I was like, cool, I get to use as many spiders as I want in this campaign. <laughs> so, um, and, and I did. 
good I, I think that actually leads us to something that we mentioned that we needed to talk about at the beginning, and this is as natural a place as any. Let's talk about how this stuff interacts with safety techniques, because obviously, you know, if you're going to be putting anything that could be genuinely disturbing to your players and you want to make sure that you don't take it too far. So um, for my money, there's two primary types of safety techniques. There's uh, filters, which are kind of like the lines and veils that uh, Jenny referenced. Just to give you an idea, if you're not familiar with lines and veils, um, a line is something that you don't want in the game under any circumstances at all. And a veil is something that you're okay having in the game if it's off camera. This is a conversation that you usually have like in session zero or sometimes um, if a game that, yeah, if a game is going to be, you know, making some major changes, you can say, hey, I'm thinking about including, you know, these elements or, you know, we've added some new players. I'd like to go through this again just to kind of make sure that I'm not violating anybody's boundaries or, you know, bringing up something that they're uncomfortable with. Uh, Lines and Veils is probably the most... Um, it's probably the earliest one of these that that got any kind of major traction. Recently, Monty Cook Games put out a consent checklist uh, that's that's got kind of like a pre-filled out list where you can be like, you know, yellow, red, or green on those. Honestly, having used both, uh, while I appreciate the effort and the professionalism of that consent checklist, I really like Lines and Veils better. I think it allows you to be more specific about what you really don't want in there as a player. I think... Um, you know, off camera or hard no or yeah, fine, include this is better than red, yellow, green because that's kind of left ambiguous. Uh, that said, I think that if you are going through and doing lines and veils for the first time with a new gaming group, having a copy of that list off to the side where you can look at some things to kind of jog your memory as to what might set you off, awesome thing to do. Um, so that would that would be a filter. The idea is to kind of take out material that's going to be upsetting or uh, damaging even to players before it even gets into the game. Uh, and then also, I would say there's a second type of safety techniques, which I would call breaks. So that's, you know, kind of like the X card where you've got a um, you've either got a card in front of you or one in the middle of the table that you'd you know, tap or hold up to say, whoa, stop. You know, this is this is becoming too much for me. This may not have been something that I was aware of ahead of time, but I, I can't handle this right now. Uh, we, we need to take this story in a different direction. Right. There's also um, one out there called script change, which is much more granular. But I, I think the simplicity of the X card is probably good for people that are using safety techniques for the first time. If you're really into story games in particular, I think you'd get some mileage out of script change because it lets you engage with this, the game on more of a meta level using specific tools. And there's, there's some neat potential there to do more than just keep the game safe, but the X card will get the job done and you want one of each. You want a filter and you want some breaks and you want to kind of, um, identify what you're using and get it all established and get everybody bought in ahead of time before you even start playing your first session. And that yeah. buy-in is critical because these safety techniques don't just establish, you know, you're going to be safe, you know, this, this is how we're going to be safe during the game. It says it's okay to play this game because even if it's going to be something that is going to be scary, right, we're going to do a horror game or whatever, you're cool. It helps people buy into 
playing the game knowing that there's things they can lean on if there is a problem and that they've eliminated some things. It's it's like safety equipment when you're doing, you know, some something outdoors or something like that. It's like, yeah, you know, I don't want to go rappelling unless there's actually a safety line and I'm wearing a helmet, you know? Like, yeah, I would like, like to be smart I, about this. Yeah, how'd I've you had like had to get out of take... Sorry. I've had to take fall training before, or not fall training, but like heights training before, because sure. uh, I was very briefly in a very terrible industrial working program. Um, but one thing I will credit this school with, when they were doing their heights and safety training, they said, never work with anyone who takes this lightly. Yeah. If, if you see anybody taking this lightly, you walk off the job and that's it. Yep. And if you want someone to back you up on that, you come right back here and you tell us and we will go after them. <laughs> because you don't want to work with somebody who doesn't care about you. And you don't want to play a game with somebody who does not care about you. Yeah. I guarantee so, yeah. that every single panel at Save Against Fear has talked about emotional vulnerability to some degree. Yeah. Gaming is opening yourself up to be emotionally vulnerable. You do not want to do that with people you don't trust and without safety mechanisms in place because you may not know everything that's going on in your own head. I certainly don't. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's just magnified with anything with horror elements in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is, this is kind of like, you know, you're probably fine riding a bicycle without a bunch of um, safety equipment down a calm residential street that you're familiar with. You know, Lord knows members of my generation did it for years and most of us are still here. Accidents did happen. I've got elbow you're, scars to probably, prove it. Yeah, but you're probably going to be okay. How'd you like to hop into a roller coaster without any kind of restraints or safety things? Because that is not something I'm going to sign up to do. Mm -hmm. And yeah. this is closer to the roller coaster than the bicycle. Yeah, yeah it really yeah. is. I'd, I'd say especially so because you don't know what turns and twists the roller coaster is going to take you, exactly. during a horror game or even just a mildly spooky game you might find a new trigger mm -hmm. like and that can happen i've actually had it happen in a non-spooky game before where yes. somebody was like oh i guess i'm not over this thing that i thought i was over yeah. we have to stop and yep. the game yeah. stopped it's happened in games i've run you know people who just show up with a lot of things that they aren't really fully aware that they have issues with because gaming is an escape, but that doesn't mean that you're leaving everything going on outside of yourself, you know, at the game, you're not yeah. coming in tabula rasa. So. Yeah. Worst thing that ever happened to me at a gaming table was somebody attacking, or at least a con game table was somebody attacking an anthropomorphic cat um, NPC that wasn't doing anything shortly after my wife and I had lost our actual like pet cat that we had both been really fond of. Yep. I couldn't take it. I tilted, you know, it was, and it's like, if you had asked me about that sort of thing beforehand, maybe with enough thought I would have gotten there, but it was like, eh, I've heard good things about Pugmire. I'm going to sit down and try this. And then somebody decided to just cut down a, you know, an anthro cat sentry. And it was like, Whoa, no, this is way too much. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Okay. That brings up something that um, I think we should maybe hit on a little bit here. How do we then walk walk something back? 
it's I mean, I think well, let, me, let, me, let me throw okay. a little complexity out there. How do we walk something back without then completely abandoning the tone we're going for? I mean, in some cases, I'm not sure you do. Okay, if somebody yeah, has gotten, valid. yeah, if somebody has gotten genuinely upset, I th- I think immersion and game tone take backseats to getting that person back into a stable state. True, and I I, I think um, it's very important as we're having this conversation to acknowledge that sometimes you just have to throw the game out in you know favor of keeping the person okay, and that is not just okay; that is right and proper. Yes. Um, people are more important than stories. Yeah. Nothing that happens in the fiction of the game is anywhere in the same level of importance as the people sitting around the table, Mm -hmm. physical or virtual. Um, I think it might not be the worst idea to sort of have almost a backup game. Like if you know that you're going into a game that has spooky elements that someone might have to nope hard out of with a hard nope, um, it might not be the worst idea to have a game like like one of my favorite board games ever, Nevermore, is a series of very simple mechanics with very mildly spooky card art. It's still spooky-ish. If you're s- still set on spooky, play a game like Nevermore, play a game like Mysterium, or something like that. If you're absolutely set on spookiness. If you still want to keep a game going, have a backup. Um, Say... If you want to keep it to to gaming, I know that something that I had I had to deal with this constantly, mostly due to scheduling conflicts. But like I would plan for so and so to you know be at a game and they would be there, and they'd be like, "Well, guess we're doing a boring dungeon crawl today." And but some of those boring dungeon crawls turned out to be really really fun because we were working around different parameters than any of us had expected. Right. Um, I think this might be, and granted, I do not have a whole lot of experience with script change, but this might be where script change is a uh, an easier mechanic to switch off to. Hmm. If I'm yeah, sense. script change does explicitly have that rewind mechanic where you can just kind of back mm-hmm. up the story to the point before things went off the rails and take it in a different direction. But even without it, even just with the X card. I think as a GM, that's a good thing to kind of keep in your head as part of your toolkit is it's like you can just rewind the plot until it's not something that's just totally screwing with somebody and take it in a different direction. I think it's also fine. Like once again, you know, the the humans around the table are more important than the game. Break the immersion metagame a little bit. Look at the player and say, okay, what if I did X, Y, Z? If they're like, yeah, sure. That'd be fine. That wouldn't be upsetting great let's do that and then you know do your best to draw people back in as you go from there right one of the things i will say too and i say this mostly as somebody who runs games but this is something that everybody at the table needs to do watch other players if somebody is starting to sort of collapse in on themselves withdraw not participate make sure that person's okay they may not be in a head state where they can just come out and just be like, oh, okay, no, I need to stop this. Right? That happens. Yeah. People shut down. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure... Freeze is one of the fear responses. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Uh, and especially if you... This is something that I do. If I see other people having fun, I don't want to interrupt that even if I'm kind of getting into a bad headspace with things. Right? Because yeah. well, that, that that's me being a bad person. It's not. But... Th- that doesn't mean that I can consciously and rationally make that change, you know, based on what's going on in my head. 
So it's okay to watch other people. And again, normally this is one of those things assigned to the GM. I kind of disagree with that because the GM in many games is doing more than the players because they're having to keep track of plot. They're having to pass the spotlight around. They're having to keep track of NPCs, blah, blah, blah. Other players. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that they have to juggle. There's a lot of um, notes and, uh, you know, just kind of like trying to improvise and that sort of thing. Your, your attention is so taken up by just kind of keeping all the plates spinning that you need to, to keep a game functional that you may lose track of some of those elements, but another Mm -hmm. player, hmm, keep an eye on the people to your left and right, or keep an eye on to the people, you know, two seats around from your dominant eye, or, I mean, unfortunately, you know, due to the pandemic, we're all gaming online these days. And I know both our Saturday group that we're all in and my Sunday group, we don't use video because bandwidth issues and that sort of thing. Yeah. So you gotta be, you kind of got to listen for like changes in people's um, tone of voice and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that can be harder. I, I think also if you're going to have that little access to people, it's probably not good to introduce a lot of these elements unless they're pretty lightweight with a group that you aren't pretty darn sure that there's a significant amount of trust built up in already. Yeah. Like our Saturday game would be fine to introduce some of this. I, I'd be a little more hesitant in the Sunday game, just be, you know, nothing against the Sunday players. They're great. Um, I think I've even got one in the chat here actually. Yep. Uh, But I don't, I haven't been gaming with them for like a decade like I have with you guys. So yeah. Uh, One thing that literally just came to mind. I wish I'd put this in the notes. I wish I'd come up with it beforehand, but I think this may be a strength of online gaming. If you are feeling uncomfortable, you can pass a secret note. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even need to be secret. I'll say this in our games. We often have voice going and then there's a side conversation happening in chat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And chat sometimes is safer because you're not speaking. You're just putting text out there. Yeah. Now, but you're right. Just IMing the God, I am. I'm old. Um, you know, just uh, sending us a message to the GM or even other players, you know, because sometimes a peer to peer relationship. And God knows I hate the whole GM is above the players nonsense that, yeah. you know, is a, a product of like the 80s and 90s. But there's there is this idea of, well, it's grant's game it's jenny's game something like that you know when it's the gm and other players sometimes just messaging a peer and saying this is real weird this is uncomfortable or i'm just not feeling great about this is enough to get that other person to speak up for you right the other thing you as a peer need to be watching for that because that's almost more supportive in a way the the other thing too that i would throw in there is if you feel like you need to do this another strength of online games is you can literally just close the tab that the game's in and punch right out um yeah, it's yeah. you know Especially it's if nobody's respecting your responses to things just nope out of yeah it. it's you it's uh, anyway. polite if it's a you know if it's something that comes up really severely and you just need to like stop it from coming into your ears it's it's polite to then use like a back channel most gaming groups have like you know a discord server or you know something to that effect yeah be like hey guys it was too much you know i'm i'm gonna you know drop for this evening or consider this you know my invoking the x card or whatever but you know yeah. all you got to do is just reach up and hit that little x you know mm-hmm. 
And if your gaming group severely holds that against you, it's time to find a new gaming group. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, there's one thing that I want to throw out here. We're talking about players having agency over controlling when they get out of a horror scene or spooky elements that they don't like. How okay. can we, as people who are running games, and I want to frame it in that way, because if we're talking about a purely collaborative game, this is almost built in. But if we're doing a, a game that's a classic GM and players sort of structure, how do we make room for players to introduce spooky elements on their own to make Note a scene passing. more interesting? Hmm? <laughs> Note passing. Okay. This is sort of where I was going with the whole thing. Um, one of my favorite things uh, that it, it wasn't spooky, but it could easily have been turned spooky. One of my favorite things that has ever happened to me in a con game uh, was a paranoia game where we regularly had to pass notes to the GM while all of the characters were literally in the dark um, and saying what they were doing in secret. Cool. Real um, quick. Hey, Jack. Good to see you in chat. Hey, Jack. Hi, Jack. <laughs> Sorry, I can't watch chat. Uh, hi, Jack. Um, but yeah, literally one of my favorite things that, that we've ever done was everyone around the table knew that everyone else was, was doing secrets. Mm-hmm. Everyone else had some sort of secret, whether that was in character or out of character. And I think that secret note passing is, it's one of my favorite mechanics ever, and we don't get to do it nearly often enough in any of the games that I run or play in. Um, So, yeah, secret note. So I've got a completely different answer. This is really one of those places where kind of the old GMing saw of yes and really kind of shows its full utility. Mm -hmm. Because, okay, so... Let's let's use our um, Saturday game as an example. A lot of the time, Grant, you'll describe a scene, and one of us seems like usually me or um, Chrissy does a little bit of this too. Will kind of come back with, you know, another detail or something that they would expect to see in the scene. Yeah. And a lot of the time, you're like, yeah, yeah, you'll see, you know, this or that, and it's like you kind of just let players do that kind of feeding off of the atmosphere. You know, it's like if. If you're like, yeah, you're in this room and it's kind of dark and it's humid in here and it's clammy and you can hear, you know, like the trickling of water and stuff. And people are like, you know, like mist, you know, clinging to the ground, like, yeah, mist clinging to the ground. You know, if they give you those details, make them canon unless you've got a real good reason not to. Kids are amazing at this, by the way. Middle schoolers are amazing at this. Like, I did not prompt them to do that kind of thing when I was gaming with them, but like, they absolutely did. Um, there were also times when, uh, I, I, I'm an improv GM, so I'm generally like working off of whatever players are giving me. So there would be days when the whole group would be there and I'd be like, what do you want to do? Tell me what you want to do today. And j- just give me general terms. What do you want to do? Right. And, uh, one of the, the biggest uh, versions of this that that they did they they specifically said they requested this was we want to take down a human trafficking ring and i was like okay i guess we're taking down a human trafficking ring then today <laughs> um that gave me enough to work with that i could i could build something that they were all engaged in they were all into 
Yeah. But I could still surprise them because they gave me such a general idea to work with that I could be like, all right, here's how this is going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, here's your human trafficking ring. I get to tell you how it's scary and why you guys are the heroes. Um, okay. I like that. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think one other thing, too, just this is kind of, I suppose, good advice for this whole general topic. But don't neglect um, in your descriptions what the players hear and don't neglect what they smell. Um, those are two senses that I know get passed over in a lot of GMing descriptions. I'm guilty of it myself. I, I wish I could remember this stuff more often. But one of the things that kind of came up in our creepy crawly episodes that we just you know recorded last and will be coming out on Tuesday uh, was kind of the idea of just remember to use the stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. buzzing flies or um, some kind of a weird like, you know, aroma that you can't place or that you can place, but you don't know where it's coming from, you know, those kind of elements um, are a good way of kind of riffing off of what the player is doing, because I know even in real life, like you kind of you come into an environment and you become more and more aware of like the details in that environment, the longer you stand there. Right. Like if you you walk into um, a really good example is like walking out onto the street from a darkened movie theater. You know, you're, you're first kind of hit with that first blast of light and then kind of the sounds fade in and you start noticing kind of the events going on around you and the smells and stuff. And it only takes a, a second or two, but it's definitely a process as your body kind of starts prioritizing things. So if you kind of leave something out initially, you haven't blown your chance to include it later mm-hmm. because, you know, once again, the longer you stay in an environment, the more you notice about that environment. Yeah. I'll also say this is a good way to play with things the the characters don't know that they already know. Mm. Um like make those senses something familiar. So like say you're, you know, walking down a hallway and it's really dark, so you have your flashlight out, and all of a sudden one character I I would like point to them and say you, you suddenly get a whiff of your grandmother's perfume, but your grandmother's been, you know, passed away for 10 years. So make it something that is familiar to them, but out of place. Right. Or if you really want, you can be like, okay, I've talked with this player before. We did some, some character creation session stuff, session zero. I know that this is your character is motivated by the passing of their grandmother for whatever reason you get a whiff of that perfume that's something that they have already brought in that you're then playing off of Mm -hmm. Um, for those who don't know uh, Peter Jenny and I last season did um, we were guests on a uh, actual play podcast called City on a Hill City on a Hill Gaming Peter and I are doing it again uh, this season and I'm running the, the game this season and one of the things that I did was record a session zero because I thought that was very important uh, in part because I wanted an opportunity to demonstrate some safety techniques to an audience that was listening to an actual play and things like that, right? Hearing some behind the scenes stuff. But one of the things that came up was I, I said, okay, I want all of you to tell me one thing that is true in this setting. And I think that threw a couple people for a loop because they're not used to D&D being collaborative. But there were a couple of things that got thrown out that were generally like, oh, this is going to be something I've got to play off of because it 
a happened to tie directly into what I was trying to come up with in the game and B is something that I would be really a bad GM if I left out because it's super cool. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the most valuable gifts that the whole kind of story games movement gave us is kind of the irrefutable evidence that everybody around the table is going to have some good ideas. Yeah, absolutely. And it's mm -hmm. great to let that happen. And I would say it's important to even let players set scenes. They, you know, if you say, hey, this is a creepy scene, they know what that means. Let them talk about, yeah, I'm brushing cobwebs out of the way. Yeah, I smell something gross in here. Let them do that. It's great fun, and it's a burden off the GM, but also it's just it's organically adding to what you've got in the game already, and it's wonderful. One thing I want to mention real quick, talking about um, smells and sounds. I mean, listen, pandemics suck, but online gaming is kind of great. And yeah. You know, it's hard to do with smells, but sounds are actually really easy to include in a, a game. There's so many tools. Listen, if if you're on RPG forums, big ones, you know, RPG subreddits or whatever, you will see post after post of, hey, here's this thing for sounds, you know, soundboards and soundscapes and things like that for your game. And it's like, I, I'm 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 wallowing in them. I'm, I'm up to my knees in different soundscape options at this point, and a bunch of gaming platforms for online gaming already include those. Now, I know there are players who have audio processing issues, so if that is true at your table, don't use those or use them very sparingly, or use them in a way where it's not going to cause audio processing issues for players. Um, you know, maybe somebody can listen to it before the game starts as we're sort of setting up. But then once they actually need to focus on dialogue, fade it out, turn it off, you've already kind of get, got the mood set. But if not, cool, take advantage of that. You know, Again, just be respectful of your players and, and aware of what they need and want. But that's so much fun because everybody's already listening with headphones. Take advantage of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we all have sense memories. You can describe senses as tastes, you know? Oh yeah. It's, it smells like how something would, you know, something gross would taste or smells how something wonderful would taste, you know, taste and smell are so closely interlinked. We don't often have an opportunity to use the taste sense in gaming because very few people are going around licking things, but <laughs> you know, <sighs> I said very few. I said very the middle, few. The middle schoolers are wild, is what I'm going to say to that. I know. I, I've Listen, I have run my eight-year-old through uh, the first section of uh, Lost Minds Fandelver, and I'm pretty sure her Dragonborn licked something at least once. I'm just saying. Um, but, you know, go ahead and use those, those senses, you know, that taste sense as a smell, because they're so closely linked you can do that. Um, touch is another one that I think is probably closest for horror games because it starts to be invasive and when you start getting things on you, uh, feel like just describing that can really get that prickly icky sensation going. One other thing that I would throw in there is every place that you go regularly has a distinctive smell, whether you really consciously think of that or not. Um, your workplace does, your home does, the home of your relatives do, uh, the homes of your friends do, the stores that you visit. Um, there's a particular distinctive smell that um, 
you know, goes with your church or uh, places that you would volunteer, or you know, the game store that you go to. And so if you're going to um, evoke that kind of an idea, it's like this place just kind of feels like you're somewhere else, you know, like you're, you're in this, in this weird, like, you know, underground passageway or something, but it feels like you're at work, you know, it smells like you're at work. It's like, you're, you're getting like, you know, the, the kind of the non-visual sense cues of being in some place other than where you're actually at. If I that can be very this... eerie and. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I mean, that, that can be very eerie in a good way of kind of creating that unsettled, spooky feeling without pulling anything horrific in because you've got things that don't match now. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things I want to add to that, and this is what I was trying to, to add, I thought, apologize for interrupting. I thought you were done. Um, That's okay. There are common things that you can lean on so that you do not have to describe smells in exact detail or sounds just lean on what are probably common experiences. If I tell you this place smells like a doctor's office, that yeah. has a very specific sense memory that's probably pretty close for everyone. But even if it's not exactly the same, everybody has certain things that they emotionally associate with a doctor's office. And the smell <laughs> sense memory triggers... Dale that. Air and isopropyl alcohol. Yeah, well, probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You yeah. know, uh, and a little bit of, uh, you know, stainless steel underneath that. Mm -hmm. But if I just say that, it doesn't matter exactly what brand of cleaning product is used there. It's a common thing that everybody knows. And that's something that is really worth remembering. Every game is happening in every player's head simultaneously, and you're never going to get exactly the same experience from person to person. It is all subjective, even though it is a shared experience. My yeah. mental image of a game Jenny is running is different from Peter's mental image of that game and is probably very different from what Jenny is mentally picturing, you know? Um, and that's fine, but if you can lean on something that's sort of shared, that gives you leeway rather than getting bogged down in an argument about what isopropyl alcohol actually smells like. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also think there's this this sort of thing that I've, I've been trying to mull over and, and trying to sort of express let's also not forget that like emotions have a physical aspect to them mm. when you feel like 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 the, the thing that that i would use an, as an example is you're wandering through this spooky house that you're investigating or whatever all of a sudden you feel like you forgot your homework like ever as soon as i say oh no you forgot your homework like i i i think it and i still get that like my gut dropped out of my yeah. feet kind of feeling yeah so i think bringing the physicality of emotions into it as well might it, i think that could be fun oh yeah the the um, human brain can mix things up in such fascinating ways you know it's like i'm sure we've all had the thing where you know i'm holding one thing and i've got something else in the other hand and I need to do something, but I do it with the wrong hand. And it's like, okay, I just put milk in the cabinet. Okay, mm -hmm. this, this isn't going to work, right? Um, or, oh, I just tried to wash my phone. It just, it's not, or your brain stuck, just misfires. I saw a wonderful one. My dad did that once. Yeah, I saw a wonderful one online where somebody was um, 
you know, snacking while filling out like their outlook tasks for the week and was hit with the sudden unmistakable sense that they had just eaten a task. <laughs> and it's just, it's the brain. The human brain is weird. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And so leaning into some of that weirdness with your description, because you're not limited by trying to trigger exact things in people's brains physically. But if you can describe it, you can sort of create that emotional and mental jog that makes people kind of go, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Ooh, I had that happen once and just get that little trigger. Mm-hmm. And I think horror is a really interesting exercise in empathy. Yes. It's it's a uh, a weird not quite negative empathy. Um Yeah, that's all I have to say on that. I thought I'd have more to say. But... Uh, no, actually, I think that's a valid point. This is is jogging off the topic very slightly, but empathy is critical in horror games because you need to f- continue to feel in order for it to have any impact. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are playing, you know, a, a horror game and you completely cut off all your emotions and approach it from a purely tactical perspective or whatever, you may win, but you've lost but out you... on the experience that you were there for. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. You're not playing a horror game anymore. You're playing, you know, Starcraft. Yeah, exactly. Don't play Starcraft, but play Starcraft. Starcraft's great. But, you know, when you're signing up for an emotional experience, don't reduce it to that. Um, and I, I think that's, that's critical. And that's why I like to circle it back around. That's why I like introducing these into games that these spooky elements into games that do not already have some sort of element because it's a way to build up tension and it's a way to do that for people who have already bought into their characters and are, you know, feeling comfortable in that character already. They've opened up because they haven't had to put up any walls. And while I don't want to go, aha, your defenses are down, I'm going to hit you with horrible things because that's being an awful person. What I do want to do is say, okay, let's build on that since you have, been, you know, decided it's cool to leave my, you know, emotional defenses down in this game. I want to slowly build up some of that tension to make it so that you're, you still inhabiting that character want to do something because your character is experiencing a negative emotion and they've decided something must be done because by and large people are playing protagonists. They want to act and solve problems in games. Ultimately the, the big conceit of gaming with genre fiction is you have agency. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. being able to do something with that is, is powerful and giving people a motivation to act is delightful. That's, that's the whole point. Quick note to everyone in chat. Uh, in about five minutes, we're going to start taking questions. So as we wrap this up, go ahead and be thinking of those questions. Um, you know, I'll do my best to keep up with questions in chat and uh, take notes of them and, and who they're from. But go ahead and start thinking of those. Uh, start filling up chat with them if you want. And I'll go from there. Yeah, I've got an eye on it too. So cool. uh, any final thoughts on this from any of us before we throw it out, out to, to chat? Hmm. <sighs> Not in particular. Okay. Um, I think we've hit the high points. I mean, yeah, like we've, we've hit pretty much everything. If people point, want us no, to get more specific, they can ask us about, questions yeah. about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Um, I think maybe the 
only thing that I really want to throw out there is humor is how people deflect when they are tense. Uh, or it's how a great many people deflect. And so as you add more spooky elements, expect more jokes and don't be offended by that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's like I've seen discussions with GMs online where it's like, oh, my you know, my players aren't taking this horror game seriously. They're cracking jokes all the time. And, you know, of course, because the Internet is an awful place, you'll get stuff. Well, you know, like give it some real teeth, you know, may, you know, punish the heck out of them for doing that sort of thing. And it's like you don't need to do that. Just to understand human psychology a little bit. You know, it's humor, humor and fear come from the same root of surprise. Yeah. Like it, lean into it even maybe like have the ghost joke with them. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, humor and and horror have the same base root it's it's not uncommon and you'll sometimes see like combined in music or media rather like you know who here has seen Shaun of the dead you know it's a solid movie you know (laughs) um it's got some humor and some horror in it and it's yeah you can kind of the other thing too is um i i think a lot of gms don't realize like Grant, you were talking about that kind of dramatic rise and fall or, you know, tension and release kind of a thing. You need to have kind of that up and down emotional right. cycle. You, you cannot just ramp everything up to, you know, maximum tension and just hold it there vibrating for like an entire four to six hour gaming session. You can't do that. <laughs> you know, people people will look for an out. They will check out. They will, you know, start. You know, they'll they'll get up and walk away. You know, it's like they'll yeah. mentally or they'll physically. Find a, yeah, they'll find a reason to need to use the restroom or go to the kitchen for more snacks or something. They will do something to alleviate that psychological yeah. pressure. They'll create their own ma, basically. Ma being the space between a clap. Hmm. Um uh listen to Hayao Miyazaki. He's got a lot of good things to say about pacing, and I think it can apply to horror as well. Sure. He, he did some scary movies too. Like, let's not pretend it's all my neighbor Totoro out there. Oh no! So some, some of his stuff yeah. is genuinely yeah, Miyazaki has some good things to uncomfortable. Say. Um, you know, and has a lot of creepy stuff going on, and I love it. Oh, Jenny has frozen briefly. I assume she'll be back in a minute. Yeah, um, let's hope so. Yep. All right. Well, I tell you what. This is a, probably a good time to start throwing things out to chat for questions. First question I see, did someone mention Don Bluth yet? Uh, no, but, you know, we probably should. I'm, I'm all for uh, mentioning Don Bluth. Don Bluth definitely is one of those uh, that we um, we can go to for, oh, that's creepy. Um, one of my favorite podcasts that is semi-defunct at this point, um, which originally started as the Gameable Disney podcast, is now... Uh, you know, they went through Gameable Pixar and then Gameable Saturday Morning, and it's sort of on a hiatus while Chris Newton, you know, deals with being a parent uh, and everything else going on in the world. Yeah. Um, they just they were talking about in one of their bonus episodes, uh, Se- Secret of Nim, and how the owl in Secret of Nim is the best dragon that has ever appeared on camera in an animated film. And I've yeah. always thought that that was exactly right. That idea of this lair is terrifying. It's full of like bones that are, you know, and yeah, they're like mouse bones and rodent bones, but you've already sort of bought into 
our protagonists are mice, so that's terrifying. And then you have this huge, weird, blind owl looming down, and it's just terrifying. You know, this almost opalescent sort of glow in its eyes, and it's just, woo, no, wow, that's a, <laughs> that's a lot bigger than I am. <laughs> yeah, size, I, I suppose, is probably something that we didn't really mention, but things can be you know, spooky or alarming just from their sheer vastness. And it doesn't even have to be something threatening. Like um, a really good example of that is you, you ever watch those like uh, scale comparison videos of anything yes. like, any, any, you know, like um, I watched one of just like fantasy spaceships the other day or uh, sci-fi spaceships the other day it went from, you know, like some little tiny thing in men in black to all the way up to like a Dyson sphere. And it's just, you know, you start watching as they get bigger and bigger and they, you know, put like reference objects and like, this is a person, this is a truck, this is a commercial airliner. And it's like, that's getting real big. Like, that's that's kind of unnerving, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, personal thing, I live out kind of in the, the country, you know, I, the town that I live in has 7,600 people in it. Um, the largest one that's within a half hour drive is about 150,000 people. Uh, that's that's Rockford. That's like the, the second largest uh, city in the state of Illinois behind Chicago, which is obviously millions. And it's interesting, like every time I go into the city, I have that um, that sense with the buildings, because around here, if you get like a four story building, that's big. You go into the city and you've got, you know, things that go up so high that you're in like this perpetual shade area even at high sun because of the buildings you know you're in the the yeah. concrete canyon as they call it and it's like just the size of something can be eerie on its own i don't think the building's gonna step on me i don't think the building's gonna fall on me i don't think the building's gonna do it's a building you know there's very strict codes for skyscrapers and stuff it's eh, whatever it's not inherently threatening but the fact that it's just so big is eerie on its own i think twin peaks also did this really well um there's a, a character there called the giant and they got a, an actor in who has gigantism and he's still definitely a human being mm -hmm. but he's like eight feet tall and it's like just bigger enough that it's like i'm like really hmm you're probably human but like, what if you're an alien though, wearing yeah. a human skin? Like, yeah. it's just there's this little bit of oh, that's unexpected. Big fish did um, that very well as well. Mm -hmm. Well, big fish. Okay, fun fact. Big fish is one of my favorite movies. It was not particularly well reviewed necessarily or well received, but it's one of my favorite movies, and not just because it's the movie that my wife and I watched when we first started dating. Um, but it's kind of this delightful trip through Americana and like the idea of the American myth and how America makes myths. And there is a character like that, Jenny, who's just this huge towering ogre or Cyclops like figure. And yeah, it's unsettling and it's designed to be unsettling, even though it was friendly. Yeah. You can also do this with camera angles a lot in, in we're, we're getting way off of, gaming here but twin peaks did that a lot with camera angles as well they would put um the guy the actor with gigantism in a low ceilinged room to really bring forward that effect of wow this guy is not in his mm -hmm. element 
Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the counterpoint I, I, to that, real quick. Um, if you go to Disney, everything is uh, 19th scale because yep. you feel bigger and thus more in charge of your surroundings. Hmm. Okay, so so here's kind of a, a funny... Um, sure, actually, last thing, no, and then we funny. got a question that I want to, want to go to. Okay. So. Yeah, this, this was something that was used... Uh, it was quite a while ago. It was back when Phil Klein was the police commissioner of the city of Chicago. There, um, this was like nineties or early aughts. There was a, um, a group of protesters that was very destructive. That was kind of following like the world trade organization talks around and they would engage in a lot of, you know, vandalism and stuff. And, um, Klein was very much like, you know, you are allowed to protest. You are allowed to, you know, have your voice and that sort of thing. But I don't want people getting hurt and I don't want, you know, things getting damaged by these people. So what he did was um, this was also kind of before police really got militarized is he went out and he found all of the, the sh- tiniest little shortest cops that he could possibly find, like, you know, the, the little petite women. And then he went out and he found like all of the really big, tall officers that he could find. And he did like a phalanx of the small ones in front and the big ones in back so that the difference in size made the guys in back just look like giants. It was pretty psychologically effective. People didn't, you know, it stayed very peaceful. People didn't mess with those people that look like they were larger than humans should be. That's great. So, all right. Um, quick note, I'm going to start looking for questions in chat here. We've got one from uh, page three low. I'm just going to use Twitch handles, even if I think I know who you are. Um, just, you know, for, out of fairness and keeping people, you know, uh, anonymous if they wish. Sort of yeah. Just, you know, being respectful. And this one is from page three low. How does your audience change your definition of spooky aside from what's age appropriate? For example, how would you approach a spooky game? How would, uh, would how you approach a spooky game change if you were running for a con game or your regular table whom you know well? Yeah, yeah, definitely would. It does, it it does but the yeah. question, of course, is how. Um, yeah, for, okay, so for a con game, um, I would lean on stuff that's I know is kind of spooky from media that I'd seen. Uh, so I would, you know, riff off of movies like Identity or um, Annihilation that I know have that kind of constant spooky, unsettling vibe through them and, and try and, you know, use things that are, you know, just seems like, you know... Movies are produced for the widest possible audience, right? They have to make money. The more people that see them, the better they do. So that's kind of the goal of a movie. So they're going to use the stuff that is the most broadly applicable. So I would draw from movies. Mm -hmm. For a group that I know really well, I can be like, well, I know, you know, Jenny finds this spooky or Grant finds this spooky. So I can put this in and kind of tailor the experience to the people that that I know well that are sitting at the table. The yeah. other piece of that is be super upfront about what you're kind of trying to draw from and the mood you're trying to set in the game description, because sure. that sort of acts like a pre-session zero uh, lines and veil kind of thing where you can just say, this is what I'm trying to do. If this makes you uncomfortable, please don't sign up for the game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, it, it, we've talked about buy-in a little bit, like getting people to accept a premise and kind of get into that mindset yep. before they even park their butt in the seat helps you you know it's like you know this is going to be a spooky game okay i'm going to get myself in you know kind of that spooky state of mind and you know just like be looking for stuff to be weird and you know feed into it you you hope that that's what people are going to do if you give them advance warning yeah 
So I think one of the things, so one of the things about a con game is necessarily you don't know the people there, but very few of the other people at the table know each other either. Um, and I mm-hmm. think you can sort of turn that into a, almost a little quick group building kind of session, right? Like, okay, let's go around the table real quick. Uh, here are your characters. And I, I want you to tell me what your character finds spooky. Right. And so you get a little bit of, this is my character. And this is like, almost like the, you know, this is my character. This is where I'm from. And this is the thing I find spookiest. And then you go to the next person, right? And you build up a little bit of rapport and you get everybody to introduce themselves and their characters. So everybody's like, okay, that's so-and-so jot the character name down, that kind of thing. Um, but you're kind of just setting a little bit of a scene, right? What Peter said about setting up a tone is very valuable. I honestly, I think borrowing from one particular piece of media is a good piece of advice anyway, because you're, you know that you're getting a consistent tone out of it. And that's just mm-hmm. good advice, period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, for me, I'd also say very specifically, it's going to change depending on what size of town those the players are from. Mm-hmm. Because uh, rural horror is very different from urban horror. Yes, it is. So I'm going to be drawing from different... Uh, senses and different um experiences that i've personally had um because i've grown up very rural i currently live very rural but i have lived in small cities Mm -hmm. before and it's not like i haven't like i have to go to the big city to buy pants you know so like um (laughs) it's it's not that i don't have any urban experience either so uh i'm going to be drawing on on different things and it might completely change how i run a game depending on on who's playing in it yeah um for a con game i would actually maybe go local and like draw specifically from that like the the city or town that the con is being held in Uh, because people are they're all having the common experience of we're all already here um and that can help with buy-in right from the get-go and it, um, it's also cool because, in a way, it lets you sort of teach the rest of the table about something else cool going on in this place and tie it to tie that mm-hmm. experience to this moment at the table, which is really yeah. fun. It's like, oh, not only am I going to get spooked, but I get to learn about this particular ghost in St. Louis or whatever. Like, that's fun. Yeah. You know, it it gives that little element of, oh, I kind of want to know about this. Tell me more. I'm, I'm leaning in. I'm, I'm tell me more about this. Um. Anything you can do to like grab people and pull them in is good too. Cause like, like we've said numerous times and probably we'll say several more before this panel's over, this stuff runs on engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, the more that you can get the players to like buy into this and accept and, you know, be like a, a willing participant in this instead of just a passive uh, consumer of it, the better it's going to go, not just for that player, not just for you as the GM, but for everybody sitting around the table, the other players included. Yeah. One last thing on this. Jenny, we're talking about the size of the town. The size of the mm-hmm. group matters enormously for horror, that too. too. If I can sit down with, like, two or three players and have this really intimate experience, that's wildly different from running a con game for, like, 11 people or some nonsense Yeah, where it's like, okay, I got to find some media, some, some common ground that scares all of you that you can all relate to. And that doesn't 
disrupt what what is already an unwieldy group. Um, yeah. You know, one of, one of the best GMs I've ever played under is a buddy of mine who does a bunch of stuff through the gauntlet. Uh, and he his mage game for eight people was a masterpiece. And I don't know that I could ever oh. run a game like that because eight people eight is people? enormous. And it's just, you know, he was really good at characterizing people and and tying everyone in to this game. And I don't think I could do that. I just don't think I could. Um, and there were some spooky elements in that game, but a lot of that did have to come from players. And that was really one of my first experiences with a really collaborative sort of thing where we're like, wait, I get to tell you what this is like? Really? Huh, okay. I mean, this was super early in my gaming experience, right? Right. But it's like, oh, I get, I get to make things up like you do. Cool. Um, but Pass know, that narrative is, control. <laughs> it is. And you can do certain special things with really small groups that you can't do with big groups to the point yeah. where I would also maybe recommend if you're going to have like a spooky session, change the setup for your game. Like if you've got, let's say we're back to in-person gaming here. Okay. Maybe don't have the big table out in front of everyone. Pull everyone in like real tight around a smaller table. Get everyone leaning in a little more. Dim the lights a little bit and have this more intimate gaming session where we're all sort of huddled together. Right. Put a candle in the middle of the table or something silly like that. I mean, play up the atmosphere, but build that atmosphere and make it feel more like, we're this small group and there's this big, heavy world out there that's scary. Yeah. The other um, thing that you can do in a... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jenny. I'll... Okay. Uh, just sort of building off of that, uh, one of the uh, more fun single session things that I've ever gotten to do is uh, one time uh, my boyfriend Tyler managed to come and visit for my birthday. Uh, we are long distance, very long distance. And he managed to come and run a Dread game for me on oh, my birthday nice. for me and my friends. That's delightful. Um, Dread is such a wonderful, was, intimate game. Ten candles as it well. Is. Yeah, uh, but this one, he modified it so that it was Stranger Things, and there was a different tower. Nice. Um, so, oh. so yeah. Uh, it, it was very, very interesting to all be centered around this single focus object kind cool. of thing. It was very, right. very good. While I wait for more questions in chat, I want to touch on a conversation that's well, happening. Hang on. Here. I had, I had oh, one other yeah, thing. Let's, let's, go, let's, ahead, let's, go ahead. Let's, I'll touch on this in chat. Yeah. Um, chat, go ahead and get more questions what, in. One of the things that you can do with a group that you are more familiar with is that you can use like the existing group dynamics to your advantage if your players are going to be cool with that. Like, I'm pretty sure, Grant, um, Chrissy and I have a certain way of playing characters that interact in a certain way, especially. Um, in our D and D games, like she tends to play like a chaotic neutral character and I play a neutral good one. And those characters will almost certainly get along and also almost never agree about the proper way to do something. So you can probably like as the GM who's been running games for these two players that interact in a fairly consistent way, you can be like, okay, if I throw this in, these characters will, you know, play off of it this way or i don't know exactly what they're going to do but i know they're probably not going to both look at it and be like oh yeah we need to do this thing they're going to there's going to be some discussion or debate there mm -hmm. if you've got like known dynamics like that in your gaming group 
feel free to use them as long as you're not like, you know, hurting anybody in the process. Right. Or making it feel artificial. Yeah. That's the big thing. Let it, let it come up naturally and organically or, and you know, you can poke and prod people towards that, but don't be like, I need you to do this thing or, you know, Hey, your character does, no, please don't. Your character doesn't do anything. My character does things. Although I will also say, if you have a player at the table that you know has GM'd before, now would be a great time to pass them a note and be like, I need you to sow so discord among the char- among the player characters right now because it's going to be really, really fun. You say that. So, it does not have to be uh, somebody who's GM'd before. Everybody knows no. which player at the table will sow discord. That's true. But like the, the one that you know isn't going to bust immersion for no good reason. Right. You know? No, like in, in the, I'm playing a Star Wars game on Mondays. I know if I were running that game and I needed somebody to be to sow Discord, I know exactly which player I would go to for that. And he would do it in like the nicest and funniest way. And we would, within 15 minutes, be on two completely different sides of things. And it'd be wonderful, yeah. right? Like it would never mm-hmm. be hurtful, but we would definitely be like, no, you know what? I think my character would shoot your character right now. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or even like, no, I, I, I am very firm about this. It has to be the vanilla ice cream. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to answer this question from sock puppet auto. And then I want to go back to a little bit of a, a discussion that's happened in chat right above that. But uh, sock puppet auto asks, how do you come up with the cognitive dissonance descriptions. We talked about cognitively uh, dissonant descriptions of things. How do we come up with that? And I think part of that is, for me, read a lot and look for authors who do this well and Uh, steal shamelessly from them. For me, it's have a mental illness and have cognitive dissonance all the time. (laughs) Like, uh, I I am at at a point currently in my life where I can... can grapple with my mental illness in a very meta kind of way uh not everyone's going to be able to do that and that's fine uh but uh i know that i can't trust my senses all the time i know that and i can take directly from my experiences with my mental illnesses and and especially my my delusion related mental illness and and just have fun and that sort of also takes the bite away f- for me from my delusion-related mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which is, for, for those who are really curious, it's agoraphobia. Um, so, uh, uh, re- remembering how that feels and sort of taking that feeling and saying, all right, so so what if it was like agoraphobia, but it wasn't agoraphobia, it was uh, anything other kind of phobia that would lead to irrational action. I can take that and I can use it in my games. I am really grateful that I've had the counseling necessary to be able to do that. I'm not going to pretend that it was easy to get to that point, but that's where a lot of mine comes from. It also comes from stealing from media and from taking improv classes. Mm, That's a good one too. Yeah, like going for first impulse, like the the spider bending itself in half, it was one of the the most... uh, uh, emotionally effective pieces of, of improv I've ever done. And the kids thought I'd planned it from the start. Yeah. I, I had, it was just like off the cuff. Okay. So one other thing um, 
cognitive dissonance is basically just you know holding two things that are mutually exclusive in your head at the same time and kind of the, the strain that that imposes mutually exclusive is kind of your um your key phrase in there right if you're if you don't have these other experiences that you can draw on just kind of the idea of you know you think you see this and then immediately you see this and you know well this and this can't be true at the same time so which is it and then just pull back and let them grapple with that for a little bit yeah um i mean ultimately we're kind of just talking about describing something that is impossible uh, yeah, yeah I mean, I've talked about one of the, the nice media. things about this being such a verbal medium is you're you don't have a special effects budget, right? You're just trying to engage people's imaginations. Yeah. And again, that comes back to it doesn't really matter what the subjective experience of it is, so long as you describe it and everybody has a commonality to talk about. Um, I mentioned reading a lot. When I think of like a cognitively dissonant description, my mind immediately goes to Terry Pratchett, who talked, you know, had uh, one of his little things in his massive corpus of work in the Discworld is octarine, which is the color that magic produces, which is a greenish purple. I mean, that's nonsense. Physics literally doesn't work that way. Our eyes don't work that way. But that right. doesn't mean you can't write it down. It doesn't mean I can't say that out loud and say, no, don't worry about it. It's a, it's a greenish purple. And then whatever your brain comes up with, which is for me like a purple outlined in green, I guess, or, you know, whatever it is. I picture fine. like that's that iridescent stuff where it's got, it's green, but it's got like a purple sheen to it. Yeah. Any of these, there, whatever your brain comes up with for that is great. So yeah. it's okay to just lean on impossibility. We talked about, um, this game that I was running, it had a little beholder who telepathically projected his impossible name into people's brains. Um, you know, I was like, well, his name's like the taste of spoiled salt. Okay. Well, salt doesn't really spoil, but that's a fun image to go with. And again, it's a sense, uh, that is not normally used for a name. So that's exciting. And so you get two kind of forms of cognitive dissonance, something that is impossible, something that isn't a name, and both of those are a name together. That's weird. Some of it yeah. is practice. Some of it is just consume media. And this is true of, of any creative form. If you are GMing a game, read a lot. Just read constantly because you'll keep finding things that you want to include in your game over and over. I mean, I got my copy of, uh, you know, my library copy of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell over here, and I guarantee some of that's ending up in a game at some point, you know? Right. Oh, right yeah. My, behold. Mine's back in the other room, but it's, oh, it's so good. Yeah, I mean. Best best villain I've probably read in anything ever. Yeah, and I'm just using that example because it was within reach. Um, but that's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to consume more, and that helps me enormously. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so there's a, a discussion that was happening in chat. And again, keep keep the questions coming. Don't be afraid to create a backlog of questions, chat. We can handle yeah. that. Um, there was a little discussion happening about rules. And we touched on this early on, talking about the rules of spooky elements, right? There's a set and page three low and uh, Jay Swan 1999 are talking about this, where there are rules that seem to be present, but you're not sure what 
they are. And oddly enough, that ties into the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell kind of thing. Yeah, that's well, like right? every Fairy story about and, interacting yeah. with the Fae, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. That's a, it's a wonderful spooky element of, I promise there are rules here. You just got to figure them out because they're not the rules you're used to. Mm-hmm. That's so yeah. good. Um, this again requires a little bit of imagining and I think requires some planning ahead of time, unless you are really, really good or have something you can draw from, you know, ready to go in the back of your head. I'm not saying that nobody can do it. I'm saying I can't do this. I have to plan out rules ahead of time. If I'm running a game like this, I need to be able to say, okay, this is how things work. But just like, this is going to be the weirdest analogy. It's like a Sudoku. You don't give somebody a fully filled out Sudoku and say, look what I did. This is, solve this. You say, here is just enough for you to figure this out if you work at it. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, there's rules there, but you got to figure out the relationships. You got to figure out what's going on. And it's like, okay, well, how did this mesh with this? How did, how did the fact that the ghost appears under the full moon mesh with the fact that I, that we've got four reports of them appearing in daylight? What's the rule there? You know, what, what's the real light rule from the sky? So what? Light from the sky. Sure. Whatever it is. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm literally just making up two things up. Yeah. Right now. But I, I mean, that could that could be an answer in that particular thing right. is, OK, you know, as long as there's light from the sky, well, then, you know, the, the ghost can appear. And then at that point, you, you start running into things where it's like you can start doing other unexpected things like um, you could have light from like a blimp flying over or something on a moonless night and the ghost could manifest in that as long as the light's sure. coming from the sky. Or, oh, yeah, the moon just has to be full in the sky. It doesn't really. Oh, we just lost a Jenny. That's why. Uh, um. Peter is now funky. That's fine. <laughs> Peter, you, you get to be both of them for a little while. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, Hopefully she finds her way back soon. Yeah. Yep. So here, I'm just going to go. Rural Canadian internet. Woohoo. Indeed. <clears throat> oh. oh, there she is. Okay. Well, I, I see her a little Kermit the Frog icon. Yeah. <laughs> You're back. Uh, Hi, the, welcome the back. Rules, the rules for Discord are arcane and unknowable. Hang on a second. <laughs> yep, that's fine. That's fine. We're getting you back. Hey, Howdy. there we go. There All we right. Go. So, yeah, um, or, or, you know, Peter, to talk about your example again, maybe the rule is not the moon, you know, it has to be a night of a full moon. Maybe the moon just needs to be full and in the sky. And if that means a solar eclipse, great. Yeah. You know, whatever it is. So that's one way to get those rules is go like follow them a couple of stages back. What what's really going on here? But you present a couple of small effects and say, you think it's this, you think it's this, but there's commonality. That works really well. Um, One of the other. I'll admit when I make rules, I just steal whole whole cloth. I like when I was when I was running a game for the kiddos, I straight up stole an entire setting from a book I knew none of them had checked out from the library at the very least, because I can check the load history. 
So, so what Jenny is saying is use all of the resources at your disposable, including the ones that you wouldn't think of as GMing tools. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now, there is another piece to rules. We're talking about games. There are Mm -hmm. rules in games that really positively or negatively affect spooky moments. Personally, I think it's great if you want to set the current game rules that you're using aside and have like a little uh, horror, you know, uh, story game kind of thing. Yeah, like a, a segment of it's like, OK, we're going to run through this with horror game rules or whatever. You could do that. That's great, especially with something like Dread or something where you sort of pick it up, use a system and then put it down at the end. But you, there are rules that you can bring in to whatever game system you're using that play up horror or detract from it. You as the GM can pick which rules you use or don't use and which ones you can emphasize. And I think this is something people do subconsciously. Hey, I, I really want you guys to kind of lean on some skill checks here and not combat. I'm going to keep calling for skill checks. Yeah, it happens all the time give me you know hey give me lots if i'm running a horror scenario in D, maybe i'm asking for perception checks a lot and you know using that as an opportunity to describe things um but maybe i'm not necessarily asking for acrobatics and athletics checks very much or his you know maybe i'm asking for a lot of history and arcana and giving creepy knowledge whatever that is you know, something else that you can do if you're if you're feeling especially clever and have some time to prepare ahead of time, warp the rules themselves as something like yeah. you you ask for um, your your players are in some weird, creepy environment, right? You ask for checks like you normally would. But usually uh, D&D is a rollover system. You know, you're you're rolling a D20, you're adding some modifier and you're trying to get over a certain value turn it into a roll under system. So all of a sudden the players that start rolling low instead of high are the ones that get the information or succeed and the ones that are rolling high start failing. And it's just kind of like, wait, wait, that's not how that's supposed to work. You know? And it's like, mm-hmm. that's how it works here, you know? And you can, you can play then at that point, it. like the, yes, it's meta, but that's okay. It's a game, you know, it's, it's all in the toolbox. It's meta, but the physical experience of what you have going on, at the table is vital to connecting to the emotions happening in the characters. That's why dread works, right? There's a physical reinforcement of the tension of pulling a block out very carefully with shaky hands and the fear of what's going on and the fear of if I do this, I'm going to have to go back to the tower, right? That like there's Mm. that physical interaction. Um, It's, it's wonderful. It's why stuff like Ten Candles works. There's a physical thing happening at the table. Um, giving people some sort of like dread tracker or something really silly like that, that they have to move around or, you know, anything along those lines gives anything to physically reinforce. This is why, and a lot of people, I've, I've gotten some pushback on this before. This is why when I'm doing a haunted house story... I love to have a full map and the miniatures because there's nothing quite as as wonderful as having uh, one of the kiddos that I, I work with 
um, literally, like, pick up their miniature and say, I want to move into this room. And their hands are just, like, shaking, and they're like, I want to go into this room. And then they, like, put it there, and they're like, what happens? Yeah. It's it's really lovely, and it's so much fun to watch that kind of thing. And obviously that's not going to work for every game. Like, you cannot do that with a Ten Candles game. It's not set for miniatures. Um, but I, and any sort of tactile thing to sort of draw people in a little bit more, that's very I mean, fun. you know, it sounds ridiculous, but even in the dungeon crawl game you and I have been playing, the, the three of us have been playing with, like, my wife and one other player, there have been moments where it's like, we don't want to open that door. We heard mm-hmm. sounds. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. Or, or the time um, there was, uh, you know, the thing is like the, the thing that we noped out the most of wasn't even like a particularly spooky monster. No. There was a, a Dao, which is like this giant earth genie that was just like blacksmithing in this dungeon that we were working yeah. through. And, and every single one of us like wrote nope over that room. Yeah. <laughs> to scribble on a virtual tabletop is delightful because we get so yeah. many people just writing nope, 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 nope in sections and it's it's pretty I great. believe I wrote no thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like I, writing things in character as well. That is yes. also so much fun. I, yeah. I did have to write yes please just to get my voice in. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Uh, chat, any other questions? We can keep going for a while, but I do want to get questions yeah. from chat because that's why you're here. It's fun. Q&As are much more fun yeah. than us talking for a while. We can do that whenever we want. Ask and we do. about my cool bat shirt collar. Yay, bat collar. Yeah. Very cool. I, I, by the way, while we're waiting for that to come through, the, the thing that I held up was, uh, this is Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos. If you look on page... 72 they actually do this is what i was indicating before they do have a dread tracker yeah nice. um it's it's like an additional uh, it goes from unafraid to disturbed spooked afraid staggered panic paralyzed and fainted it works somewhat like the exhaustion tracker in 5e sure. um so if you're looking for something like that to just kind of simulate how uh the you know the player's mental st- or the player characters mental state is deteriorating a little bit yeah. This is a one of my favorite five E books in the first place. And if you've listened to the podcast at all, you know that I am, to put it lightly, not a huge HP Lovecraft fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we are kind of a big Sandy Peterson games fan. Like Sandy Peterson yeah. knows what's up. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes. Like I, I am a big fan of a lot of the um the caretakers of the mythos in the modern gaming industry. People like Sandra P- Sandy Peterson and Ken Height. Great people. Yeah. HP Lovecraft himself, no. So, since we're talking about books, um, one really good way to bring in a spooky element is signs and symbols. Because A, these are wonderful handouts to include. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, B, you need something that kind of is like, what is, it's it's a mystery and also a, a signifier of, oh, something's going to happen. Right. Uh, the pants. Jenny, Jenny's smirking. The pants! Know. It's the pants! It's the pants, yes. Uh, <laughs> From our Saturday game, which I don't think we've ever talked about on air before. I don't Should think we, we talk have, about the pants? No. So, um, <laughs> we've been playing Princes of the Apocalypse, which is basically a um, temple of elemental evil transported into Faerun. It's literally what it is. It's a 5e re- uh, redo of Temple of Elemental Evil. It's very well done. I quite like it a lot, uh, but that's what it is. But there are four elemental cults and they all have 
very simple symbols. And I gave, I'm, I'm kind of proud of how, how I did this. I made sure to give you all symbols before I explained the meaning of any of them. And Ginny has been yeah. furiously trying to figure out what the pants mean. And is so happy <laughs> that they came back up and finally she knows what it means. And she was able to use it yeah. with her character. Uh, but I, really I was especially valuable. like, uh, like, I knew it was like such a huge part of the setting too when it was like showing up as the like the uh, cardinal directions on maps. Yeah, on the I borders was like, of maps and pants. all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. the pants because initially yeah, I didn't. The pants. <laughs> they were just like these symbols that you'd put off in the side, and they weren't like integrated into the setting. I was like, maybe it's just some sort of thing that Grant's working in himself. Like I don't know. And then it showed up on maps. I'm like, it's the pants. It's it's the pants. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one thing I do want to add to this, if you're trying to do a spooky game that's drawing from anything real world or or not, there are collections of secret signs and symbols. I, this is a book I got from Barnes & Noble ages ago, just off like the, the, this might be just one of those cheapo, you know, hey, we printed this, it's for the front section where they stack up all the cheap books kind of things. I don't know. But I got this and one on secret societies, and they're a wonderful reference. Um, I, I'm holding up this one. There's bunches of these, right? Just any reference book of secret weird stuff is great because even if you don't do a horror game, knowing how people use symbols, knowing what they mean, knowing where they come from is inspiration, and that's wonderful for any game. Uh, and if you are running something that's near reality, you know, a haunted house in set in the nominal real world, yeah, absolutely. Slap a, you know, a, a weird, uh, you know, I don't know, um, slap the language of flowers all over it, you know? Here's that's another not, thing that you can do. Yeah, that's not just for um, games. Look that through are a mythology that. book and find stuff that comes off as a little creepy to you. Oh, yeah. Because there's. People have been, you know, creeping each other out with tales and, you know, folklore and mythology and stuff since long before we had the Internet, folks. <laughs> like mm -hmm. um, one of the things in here, actually, that um, I remember from flipping through it once and I'm never going to find it in this huge thing while I'm talking on this call. I'm not even going to try, but. It was something about like um, like one of the earliest mythologies and they did something that seemed like they were um, trying to keep people in their graves almost. It's like, you know, putting like a, a, a heavy object over the bodies that they were putting. And it's like, boy, if, you know, if you've got people who only have Stone Age technology, but they're already worried about zombies, <laughs> you know, that's that's something to work with there. And that may not have even been like what they were specifically thinking. You know, it's you're talking about like this ancient, ancient, you know, group of people. Maybe the the heavy thing is like, you know, um, this was the, you know, something that we claim that this person could have lifted or something. And it's it's a way of honoring them or who knows, you know, but yeah. if I you mean, filter that through like your modern mindset of, you know, why would you put something heavy on top of a grave? Yeah. Like there are things that 
like have baffled scholars for ages that grandmothers have figured out very quickly. For instance, there's like this one um, dodecahedron with knobs on it that they kept finding throughout like northern Italy and like the northern parts of the Roman Empire. And scholars were like, wow, it must be like some sort of, you know, worship object kind of thing. And then there's this video on the internet of a grandmother figuring out that you can use it to easily knit and weave the fingers of gloves. <laughs> nice. Like, take the mundane and then make it weird. And then, like, tr try to, okay, bring out your pretentious inner scholar. And, like, warp the everyday into things you need. Yeah, to. purposefully misinterpreting things is great. First off, it's a fun exercise, right? Yeah. It's a game I play with kids all the time. You know, my kid is like, hey, hey, grand dad, what's this? Oh, well, clearly it's this nonsensical explanation I'm about to come up with that, you know, is obviously fake. And then, you know, I get the dad, you know, <laughs> that means I've won as a parent. But <laughs> that's fun to do as a GM, because first off, sometimes you can just get players to buy in on your nonsense. And that's great if you just do it in front of them, because you'll get the same thing where it's like, They'll just pick up some stupid idea and run with it. Or Do you guys can... in school ever go through the body rituals of the Nakarima? I have no idea what you're talking about now. Oh, uh, yes. Okay, so this is the Nakarima is American spelled backwards. And it's it's basically a worked example of what you're talking about. Uh, we, we went through this in one of my English classes where it's like um, they anthropologize or anthropologized like... Um, American healthcare, like, you know, dentistry and hospitals and stuff like that. And looked at it through like the, the lens of like a, a primitive thing and just got everything totally wrong. And it's, it's um an interesting example of how, you know, you're really kind of grasping at straws, looking back at stuff and also how you can take stuff that actually has a purpose like sanitation or something like that and make it seem like it's some unpleasant, you know, awful thing that's just there to degrade somebody or something like sure. that. Yeah. Defamiliarization is always a, a powerful yeah. process as well. Uh, yeah. Real quick. We've got about 20 minutes left, maybe a little bit less. So if you have questions, please put them in chat. We want to hear those questions. Please don't feel like you need to write some massive, complicated, deep question. We're fine taking simple questions as well. They're good too. Um. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I, I had a thought briefly. Peter's doing the, the hour and a half stretch here. Uh, probably a good idea. I'm actually just putting uh, the book back on my shelf here, so I've got a spot to stick my arm again. <laughs> yes, and Yes, and um, Anyway, I, my thought was about, um, you know, kind of ridiculous ideas. If you that kind of gets back to the idea of ascribing weird meaning to everyday objects because sometimes that can just be spooky if you have a mundane object that's weirdly out of place i think the uh, the most commonly used trope that i you know in horrors is uh you know the doll why is this mm, doll in yeah. a weird place well yeah. sometimes the you know sometimes the answer is extraordinarily mundane in real life Somebody moved it while dusting and never put it back. Yeah, a kid lost it and didn't come back for it. Somebody dropped it out of a, a passing car and a dog carried it somewhere 
or, you know, it got kicked around or whatever, and all of a sudden there's this creepy doll in the sewers. Well, there's a creepy doll in the sewers because kids drop stuff out of car windows. I don't know if you know this. Yeah. Uh, I I saw a wonderful post um, on Tumblr a, a while back where somebody was like, yeah, you know, I used to play with my toys until they broke, but I didn't want to tell my parents that my toys yes. had broken. So I buried them in the uh, in the lot next door. And when uh, a land developer bought it, that you know, they saw all these creepy dolls buried around and swore up and down the place was haunted, and it's still for sale because nobody will buy it. <laughs> it it's funny, my... Um... My Sunday group uh, in this, the first time I ever ran like a pre-made adventure, there's a a clearing with a bunch of like these little like Red Riding Hood dolls just kind of arranged in a circle. My group was like, oh, that ain't good. And it's like, it's literally just setting texture. There's nothing magical about any of them. None of them do anything like it's just there to create atmosphere and nothing else. All right. We got a question from Sock Puppet Auto. How can I prompt players to make their own spooky fun? So a lot of this is just Tell good them. GMing advice in general of give players their own reins and just let them run, right? Just say, don't don't interrupt. Just let them come up with their own nonsense. Yeah. Don't um, shut them down when they do it on their own for one yeah. thing. Um, yeah. But I think it's also okay to just look at them and say, hey, what's creepy about this place? Yeah. yeah. Like, I think leading questionnaires are also very, very fun. And this yes. is where oh, where so Dread does this super well. This I love a good leading the best part of Dread. Yes. It's not the tower. It's the questionnaire. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for, for example, uh, a question would be like, um, why do you hate your mother-in-law? Mm-hmm. We have already established some facts. You hate your mother-in-law, but we don't know why. Yep. So, so uh, I... Why Why is the window in the top upper left corner of the house boarded up? We have we have now established something. There is a boarded up window in the top yeah. left corner of the house. Oh, we've we've established several things. There's a window there. The window is boarded and it's boarded for a reason that your character knows. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so this is an interesting thing too. You have a choice here of asking the player or asking the character and there's a time and place for both and this gets maybe we didn't really even talk about the difference between um dread and like spooky jump scare fear where you know the players know it's coming and they're watching their characters blindly walk into something that the players know is coming um you know, we, that's I a mean, whole that's, separate conversation. That's why people watch formulaic horror movies. Yeah. Because we know that something awful is going to happen. We go into that yeah. knowing it. It's not a surprise. Um, we just want to know what this version of it is. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I think you get very different responses if you say, hey, Jenny, why is this window boarded up? Versus, hey, Jenny's character, why is this boarded up? Or why might this be boarded up? And they can guess. That's maybe the other thing. If you want to prompt people to make their own spooky fun, don't ask for facts. Ask for theories. Ask for guesses. Why does your character think this might be? Why does you and and maybe then frame that in a spooky way? Hey, 
why does your character character think they have nightmares every time they stay in this town? Okay, we've established some nightmares. We've established that, you know, the character has some connection to this town, maybe. But we haven't established a reason. We've established something the character is worried about or needs to find out. And that's spooky fun because you're creating a question rather than giving an answer. Uh, Towson Chat says, Kids on Bikes has that. The players tell you the rumors they've heard about in the hometown. I love that sort of thing. Um, yeah. One of, the, I, one of my favorite role-playing games of all time is Unknown Armies 2nd Edition. 3rd Edition is very good. 2nd Edition is what sold me on gaming in general, right? And they have a whole, several pages of just rumors, weird rumors. And they're there partly to prompt GMs for ideas, which they do a very good job of. But they're also kind of there to set tone, but they are coming not from this is a thing that the GM might have, but rather this is some weird nonsense you have maybe heard of, which may not be true. One thing I think we do not do enough in gaming is create falsehoods. Mm. Player character, every prophecy is true. You know, every vision is 100% accurate introduce falsehood and misapprehensions and misconceptions and rumors and whispered lies because that creates an atmosphere of mistrust and confusion. It also means that the characters have to actually investigate rather than going, ah, the first thing I heard must be 100% true because that's a clue the GM gave me. Uh, it creates a sense of verisimilitude. Play, you know, people live in a real, realistic world where people are just wrong sometimes. I think all of those are valuable, but it also gives players wiggle room, and it lets you pick and choose from among possibilities rather than somebody saying, "This is true," and you go, "Well, shoot, I got to rework my session." All right, hold on. You know. One thing that I, I would like to add to what Grant just said, and that it's very good advice, but if you're going to do that, because a lot of the time you don't have that level of falsehood baked into games, right? So you need to establish that this particular game is going to have that stuff up front. So like in the earliest session, have something come up, be shown to be incorrect, um, have the, the players and the characters, you know, learn that, you know, whatever this was that, you know, you were told was either a lie or just plain wrong and do that, <clears throat> excuse me, do that at least, I don't know, three or four times or something like that before you pull back and, um, start doing it without kind of signposting it because otherwise you run the risk of having players that are used to just a very straightforward style get really frustrated or accuse you of like pulling a screw job on them or even retconning things or that sort of thing. And it can, it can like damage the fun instead of enhancing it. Yeah. And to be super um, clear, what I mean is that characters may not always tell the truth. You as the GM should always be honest with your players, right? Yeah. Never tell them, Oh, the difficulty is this. Oh, ha, ha, I lied. What I'm, you know, what I mean is, Character knowledge is fallible, and that includes non-player characters as well as player characters. 
I think even so, I would still establish it yeah, up front because very a lot of the time games don't run that way. Yeah, it's 100% true. Do that. But I mean, as an extra layer, you as the GM must be honest. Yeah. All right. We got about eight minutes left in our time slot here. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you, all of you yeah. in the chat. And thank you, Jenny and Peter. This has been really good. Uh, do we have any last questions? We have probably time for one more, maybe two more if we can get them short. Um, you know, so yeah, anybody in chat, fire them away. Um, I do want to reiterate just to follow up on Sock Puppet Auto's question here, prompting players to make their own spooky fun. Set the scene and then please get out of the way. The best GMing advice I can give you is to shut up. And I know that sounds really <laughs> rude, but like, when your players are talking, be an active listener. And when they are talking to each other, let them go. Let them do their thing. Because as soon as they start setting the tone that you want, I know you want to add to it. Don't. Let them do their thing. Not easy advice to follow. <laughs> no, no. Especially for Especially like if you me. have really interesting players. Yeah, or if you're like me and just want to hear yourself talk for hours at a time. That's why I GM. Um, that's why I have a podcast. I will uh, say, though, there is also such a thing as a, an artful interruption. Sure. Yeah. Like, or, or, or setting a time limit for something. So if the players are creating their own atmosphere, but, like, the, the, the house is literally falling down around their ears like maybe put like an egg timer on the table yeah like like there's nothing quite like the tick 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 of an egg timer slowly going down reminding you oh th we gotta get going <laughs> okay you know let's let's touch on that real quick time limits are a really interesting thing to add to games in part because it isn't usually in place so mm -hmm. adding that tension, obviously it cannot be, all right, you have 30 seconds to decide what you're doing. Like physically, you can't do that with a table of like yeah. four to six people. But if you say, all right, guys, the timer's ticking. You got three minutes. That can be really tense, right? Or you have yeah. three minutes to make, to tell me what preparations you're making. There's a, there's a game that I heard of a long time ago. I could not name it for the life of me, but it was a heist game. And the idea is that the players are describing everything that they're going to have to encounter and what they are going to come up against and how they're going to get around it. But you as the GM, every 20 minutes of planning that they do, add in something that they did not expect. Okay, you know what the, the very best example that I have ever participated in of this was? We, I was playing in a game um, and the GM puts this waltz on and we, we had like the player group had to get something accomplished before the waltz was over. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we kind of looked at the GM and we we're like, how long does this waltz last? And he's like, some number of minutes. It's like you have a clock ticking and you don't know how much time is on it. Yeah. That really builds tension. And music's a really cool timer because of, if you pick the right piece of music, you can hear the crescendo coming. You know mm -hmm. when it's going to peak and then fall off. So it's not just a flat timer you can lose track of. There's an emotional build happening that you then have to react to. Because everybody kind of knows 
how music flows, unless you've got some very dissonant modernist piece where you can't trust that. If you pick something that kind of is has some of that classical timing, you'll know when it's going to run out emotionally, but you won't really know like, oh, yeah, this is four minutes and 50 seconds. Yeah. All right. Okay, Jay Swan, 1999, asks, you have a podcast. We should probably plug that on our way out here. Yeah, so actually I'm about to do just that. Uh, First of all, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This has been fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Please continue to support the Bodana Group, not just through Save Against Fear. They do amazing work. Continue to support them throughout the year. Uh, Fun fact, I use uh, smile.amazon.com and have the Bodana Group as my, uh, my group that I support through that so whenever i make an amazon purchase some little bit of change goes their way uh you nice. can do that for any 501c3 um but that's that's I what do i with do the local food pantry you know uh yeah, also a good choice but you know I, I picked them um you know continues to say abreast of events i know that the save against fear discord is going to stay online after save against fear ends there's going to be a lot of discussion planning um and just general conversation that's a great thing to get involved with as well now as for saving the game um i suspect most of the people in chat do know about this but if you don't or if you find this video later or anything like that we're save against or we're saving the game not save against fear that's the thing you've been doing uh saving the game is a christian podcast about tabletop role-playing games and collaborative uh, storytelling and that means that we talk about a lot of these sorts of things. You know, how do we deal with horror elements? How do we deal with the real world? We're doing that from a theological perspective. It's ecumenical. We're not any of us the same denomination, which is, I think, adds a lot to it. Uh, yeah. You can find us at stgcast.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Saving the Game. Uh, we're on Twitch as stgcast, obviously. We're on YouTube as Saving the Game. Uh, and this video will be uploaded to YouTube afterwards so you know if you found this conversation interesting find it on our youtube channel and share it out to other people uh you know and subscribe we've got oh goodness 180 odd episodes uh, probably more than 200 if you count bonus episodes because we've been doing this for over goodness, eight years eight at years? this point yeah it was 2012 that we started i know summer of 2012 crazy <laughs> it used to just be grant and me um and uh, we had a, a couple other hosts kind of come and go. And then Jenny's been with us since episode 106. 106 or 107, so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we've got, oh, man. Jenny's coming up on, I've been here for more than half the time, the, the run yep. of the podcast, which is pretty <laughs> yep. great. It's yeah. Like, we like that. Yes, we do. <laughs> All right. Uh, please, if you have a minute, obviously check us out. But check out Save Against Fear. If you go to saveagainstfear.com, that is really a link to uh, the Bodana Group's site. Find out more about the Bodana Group. They obviously are an amazing group of people who do uh, gaming for all sorts of therapy. Go check out recordings of other panels once those become available. Um, I know a lot of them will be posted. Follow them on social media. Keep an eye out on stuff. You will learn a ton from your interactions with the Madonna group. We certainly have over the years. So okay. keep supporting them. And yeah, that's, that's it. Please do that. Don't worry about us. This, this is for them. Yeah. And yeah. for you, this is for you watching this episode, listening to it. Check it out. It's going to be great. All right. Any, All any right. last thoughts from anyone? Uh, no, uh, stay safe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Stay safe. You know, it's been take a rough care, year for take everyone. Take care of each other. Take, that's, Stay safe and take good care of each other. Yeah, that's yeah. It exactly. You know, show each other grace and love and, and respect each other and 
you know, be, be good to each other. Mm-hmm. All right, from all of us here at Saving the Game and Saving Us Fear 2020, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Later, folks. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.